1: Welcome to New Books and Caribbean Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm Alejandra Bronfman. My guest today, Matthew Casey, is the author of Empire's Guest Workers Haitian Migrants in Cuba During the U.S. Occupation, published in 2017 by Cambridge University Press. This book centers on the thousands of Haitian workers who traveled to Cuba during the early 20th century. His innovative approach to sources brings their stories to life and deftly demonstrates how they participated in the state-making processes of both Cuba and Haiti as they interacted with U.S. imperial aims. It's an important book that will change the way we think about migration and the lives of workers in this period. Here's our conversation. Hi, Matt. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me here. Let's start talking about you. How did you get interested in the Caribbean? So, as
0: an undergraduate student at the University of Texas, I was majoring in history and Spanish. And the more I progressed in my studies, the more I started to specialize in the region and probably an introductory lecture on the Cuban Revolution really pulled me in the direction of not just Cuba, but also the Caribbean. Um, Right around the same time that I learned about the Cuban Revolution, I had uh, been introduced to some of the writings and poetry of Emma Césaire. And when I realized that sort of both both Césaire's writings and um, all the upheaval in Cuba of the 1950s were occurring around the same time. I, I think I was hooked after that.
1: So uh, you, this is a book that puts Haitian migration to Cuba at its center, and you're at the same time really careful and attentive with your analysis of both Cuba and Haiti, together with the U.S., of course, thrown in. Um, how did you arrive at that topic, and why did you choose to frame it in this particular way? So I was looking for some kind of project
0: in graduate school that would allow me to analyze two different territories in the Caribbean together, preferably across linguistic lines. And I had come in very interested in debates about race and racism in Cuba, and anyone who's read about the way those debates played out in the early 20th century knows how important the migratory movement of workers from Haiti, but also Jamaica and other parts of the British Caribbean, were to the way Cuban intellectuals debated race. So that was kind of always in the back of my mind. And immediately after reading CLR James's book, *The Black Jacobins*, I I had this kind of eureka moment um, because. You know, CLR James is writing about the Haitian Revolution, and yet it brought Haiti firmly into my consciousness. And it sort of lit up all of those things that I had already been thinking about race and migration in Cuba. And from there, I wanted to know what was going on in Haiti in the early 20th century, and and to really connect that story to Cuba. And I had a lot of encouragement from people along the way to do this in a way that put Haiti firmly in the story, instead of just kind of treating it as this place that could always send migrants.
1: You talk about your method within the text of the book, and you demonstrate both skepticism about the sources, but also an ability to get things out of them. So, for example, you give the offer, the the case of um, this guy called Bautista Nustelier, who arrived in Cuba in 1903 as a child, but the Cuban statistics state that there was no Haitian immigration during that period. So I wonder if you can talk about your approach to statistics and your method for writing around the holes that you found. Well... One of the things that
0: was a big challenge in this project, as I talk about a lot in the book, is the fact that migrants were almost entirely illiterate, and we have very few texts written by migrants themselves. And as a result, I, in some ways, just had to get my hands on anything I could in the archive, which it made me less picky, but I also had to really reflect more upon the documents that I did have. and. I think, how should I say this? Um, So what started as this effort to really just understand what migrant experiences were like obviously turned into frustration when it was hard to get at so many of those experiences. And what I realized eventually was that if I'm having trouble ascertaining migrant experience from state sources, then there's this larger story that I had not realized before, which is what's going on with the state. Because if I'm not able to understand what migrants were going through, that also means that different governing institutions had similar problems. And so the story is partly about migrants themselves, but also about the way state power functioned on the ground. And so once I took state institutions, even very powerful and dictatorial ones as fallible institutions, ones that had their own um, gaps and blind spots and sort of incapacities, then I was able to really reflect upon what a lot of these documents were trying to do um, and, and what, what they actually implied about life on the ground. So statistics were interesting, because as a social historian, you always want to write about people. But before you can get anyone to even listen to what you have to say about migrant experience, you always have to start with, well, here are the numbers, right? So you have that, this is how many people migrated, this is how much sugar was produced, and then you can actually get into your story. And I remember having... um, Sort of a a powerful epiphany in the archive when I realized that so many years where the Cuban state said zero migrants entered, um, were actually not because zero migrants entered. It's just because they weren't really paying attention, and so somebody after the fact put a zero there in that in a a report that was written later. Um, and the reason is because many other Cuban documents that were being produced by other Um, other state institutions, not counting people who came in through the border, but just judicial records, local censuses and things like that, um, give ample evidence that that migrants were coming in in those years. And it's not very fun when you can't trust any of your documents um, fully, but that also makes it more interesting, I think
1: one of the things that you point out is the relationship between the U.S. occupation of Haiti and the migration to Cuba. How did that work?
0: So this is one of those times where I really came into a historiographic debate before I actually got to look at any sources myself. And there, there are really specific ways that people write about the U.S. occupation of Haiti, and we have some really amazing scholarship on it. But what I found is that for migration, um, both among historians, but also con- people who were contemporaries of the migrants themselves writing about these people, it's easy to project your own interpretations about what's going on onto migrants. So, on the one hand, it's very tempting, and you could possibly find some sources that imply that somehow the US occupation of Haiti. Um, had some sort of um, office or some kind of goal to use Haiti as a supplier of cheap labor to the rest of the region. It was equally easy uh, for other people to see migration as this kind of resistance against the violence and racism of U.S. control of Haiti. And so part of what I wanted to do was to actually figure out what the relationship between migrants and the state institutions were in Haiti and that also became somewhat complicated because, in some ways, migration started out as this kind of grassroots um, phenomena between Haiti and Cuba, and it was eventually regulated and expanded by um, by U.S. Um, by U.S. control of the territory. And so, as a result, depending on your vantage point. And when you're looking, sometimes it does look like um, U.S. officials are orchestrating the entire migratory movement, and other times you don't even see them there at all. Um, and so regulating migration was increasing along with other U.S. efforts at state building in Haiti.
1: So once the migrants are there, you do a wonderful job of describing their working lives, but you also pay a lot of attention to their leisure lives. Why do you think that was important?
0: Um, part of it is that we're always a little bit dependent on what sources we have. And, you know, on the one hand, nobody wants to be entirely defined by their work, Um but on the other hand, so many of my sources were judicial sources and essentially court records talking about um, you know moments when a fight or broke out or a fire occurred or things like that. And so the witness testimony from uh, Haitians, Cubans, Jamaicans, and other people in the areas in discussing whatever it was that the authorities wanted to know would often talk about their kind of daily lives. Um, you know, what was going on before this rupture in the day occurred and the setting of those was just as likely to be outside of the workday than other times. So that's kind of the, the simple pragmatic answer. The other answer is that, um, you know, Plantations sought to control a lot about people's daily lives. Obviously, plantation managers in Cuba had this fantasy that they were going to separate all the different workers by race, nationality, and ethnicity, um, sort of as as part of this larger project to keep them from uh, rising up or perhaps forming unions or things like that. And so as regulated as the workday was, or or as much as uh, there were attempts to regulate the workday, outside of those working hours is when um, there's a lot more autonomy for workers. And when workers are autonomous, part of what they're doing is spending money or just sort of attempting to take advantage of their leisure time. And those needs of people are universal. And so what we saw is that um, when it came time to gambling or drinking or relaxing, Haitians and people of other nationalities actually interacted quite a bit. And so in in many ways, for the most part, it was unstructured time. And that's where people actually got together.
1: And that's where you make an argument about race and the ways that uh, people have written about race and racial identity during this period, right? Mm
0: -hmm. So essentially, um, so much, the, the easiest sources to come by are those that appear in, um, newspapers and not to mention the plantation records. And the, for newspapers especially, they're often written in cities and urban areas, and they tend to speak in monolithic terms about the Haitians, the Jamaicans, uh, the Cubans. Um, And as a result, it's really easy to kind of think in terms of these broad categories. And so there is a lot of really excellent scholarship about the ways that people sort of devised racial classification systems and categories to describe all of the immigrants and and uh, Cubans of different races as well on the island. The problem is is that these things which were worked out a certain way on paper in newspaper offices were not necessarily a reflection on the ground in rural Cuba. So of course, in the early 20th century, more and more people, especially uh, especially literate people, are beginning to think about the world in strict nationalist terms. That's how they're going to divide humanity. And that's not necessarily dictating human behavior and social relationships at the level of the neighborhood in the rural areas. So did race matter in the rural areas? certainly. But it it did not function. There's no evidence that it functioned the way that uh, journalists were writing about it in Cuban cities. And so the dynamics, the interpersonal dynamics and relationships among workers in the rural areas uh, were not cleaving to that very clean idea of race and nation uh, that writers described, that historians have um, analyzed so closely.
1: I found the role of coffee in your book really fascinating. You make the argument that precisely because coffee was not a major export, Haitians were able to stake a claim in that industry. Could you walk us through that argument? So if you were to look at
0: Cuban economic history around 1810, let's say, then you would see you would see prominence of both sugar and coffee. Um, But sometime around the 1830s, for reasons that other scholars have explored, coffee kind of falls by the wayside in Cuba, and uh, Cuba becomes a sugar producer. And that trend had mostly continued into the early 20th century. But what starts to happen is that Cuba is producing more and more coffee around the time. And one of the reasons for that resurgence of Cuban coffee is that Haitians were beginning to invest the capital but also the immense amounts of labor into the crop so Haiti historically has been a coffee producer and one of the advantages of producing coffee is that it can be grown profitably on a small scale um, a small farm can produce coffee it doesn't require that much capital but it does require a lot of labor um, not to mention access to land and so many Haitians came from coffee growing regions of the country and when they made it to cuba and they sought to stake out a little bit of autonomy with the with the money in their pocket from the cuban sugar industry ended up leasing or sometimes even purchasing land uh in eastern cuba to grow coffee and so as they grew coffee they had a little bit more autonomy in the country you know and and at the sort of at the macro level, what we see is a capital transfer, right? Wages from sugar are actually starting to be invested in the Cuban coffee industry. And many of these farmers are Haitians. And so what I found really interesting, though, is that coffee production requires a lot of work from an entire household. Sorry, Alejandro. I think I'm starting to ramble a little bit. Um,
1: it's, it's actually, you were getting to my next question, which is um, that coffee, <clears throat> sorry, changes the picture of who is actually working. And that's where you find women and children, which um, don't often get included in these stories about migration.
0: Okay. So if coffee is being grown profitably in Eastern Cuba at the level of the neighborhood, um it's still not really bubbling up into archival sources all that much. And so as a result, it was really easy for people in the 1920s who were describing coffee production in Cuba um, to sort of see it as this kind of harmonious space, right, where they can idealize and romanticize the small farmer um slaving away on his land, um, but but having that little niche of autonomy. And when I did find sources about the Cuban coffee industry, um, and of course I drew on scholarship from uh, Brazil and Haiti as well, I noticed how much work was being put into these coffee farms by women and children, um, either Haitians, but also uh, Cubans who um who had married Haitians in eastern Cuba. And so sugar and coffee both have their downsides, what I realize. And that is that sugar is seen as this kind of um very male space of formal and strict wage labor that is managed from afar by these uh kind of large capitalist enterprises. And coffee, um, which on the surface provides more autonomy for the small farmer who's able to get away um, from not just uh, company administrators, but also um, state officials, um, actually requires a lot of work from women and children as well. And so uh, the gender dynamics on a coffee farm are much different than a sugar plantation. And when you start to bring gender into the analysis, it becomes clear um, how much work is required. And this even includes exploitation within a household um,
1: by men trying to manage uh, the work of women and children. So one, one final thing about coffee that I found fascinating is that the Cuban growers the ones who were Cuban, actually postponed some of the deportations because they needed Haitian workers, right? And it really contradicts – I found that that really contradicted the image that we have of this kind of unhindered repatriation that happens in the 1930s when everybody just kind of um, is is forced uh, – to leave so i i'm wondering what kind of a was was that an aha moment for you when you found that these these um growers are actually saying no actually we need the haitians to stay and then they can leave later on
0: well so the aha moment has to do more with how the growers actually um sorry um did you do something i can hear myself now Okay, um, so I'm hearing an echo, but you're everything's okay. Okay, um, <clears throat> so the big aha moment was not just that Cuban coffee growers wanted to change the sort of pattern of immigrant repatriation that was occurring in the 1930s. It's that their requests were so closely tied to. Political changes in the Cuban government's approach to coffee. So, if you consider migrant repatriation to having um, having occurred in 1933 and 34, with another big wave in 1937 and 1938, what you see is that Cuban coffee growers. Successfully petitioned to have Haitians stay in 1934. They were able to make the claim that they were able to make the claim that the Cuban coffee crop, which was starting to become increasingly important, would would be lost if these migrants were deported. And because the um because the Cuban government was starting to um experiment with tariffs on coffee and trying to actually this coffee production um and keep it you know because the Cuban government was trying to grow an internal market for coffee in Cuba, they actually paid attention to these landowners. Um, What happened, though, is that over the course of the 1930s, a minimum wage was established in Cuba for coffee growers, and there was this effort to actually increase the number of Cubans as opposed to Haitians on the coffee farms. And so the petitions to keep Haitians on the Cuban coffee industry in 1934, which were successful, were unsuccessful by 1938 when they were repeated. And so as the Cuban coffee industry became more further regulated, um, the sort of de facto protection for Haitian immigrants on the Cuban coffee farms disappeared. And so really, I think the moral of the story is coffee production was always a trade-off. It's really easy if you don't look too closely at the details to see it as this kind of idealistic counterpart to sugar, Um, And in some aspects, at some moments, it was. And yet, on the other hand, there were still many moments where working on a coffee farm was very disadvantageous
1: um, and equally exploitative as sugar. So I think that in general, that gives us a much more nuanced view of the repatriations as a kind of much longer and much more contested uh, process than we had seen before. And I think that you also do that kind of layering with your description of spiritual practices and how they worked. Uh, You refer to that as a dialogue. Um, And again, here, I was really curious to uh, hear you talk a little bit about how you work through the shortcomings of the sources that you have to work with, because sort of spiritual practices are notoriously thorny to Kind of get at and to, to to sort of push through the layers of interpretation and framings and other kinds of ideas about what's going on in in the sources, right?
0: Right. So, I the the chapter on religion and spirituality was one of the last ones to be written, precisely because of what you're describing, and most of the the kind of really interesting pieces of that came from Cuban judicial records and when you get judicial records you often don't get to choose which types of cases you get it depends on the archive, and so I might go through a case and it's talking about some sort of dispute about wages or land or something and then the very next one will be that these people saw some kind of ghost or or phantom in the evening and they wanted to seek redress from judicial authorities and so a lot of what i did with those was just putting them aside at first and really thinking about them and what i did soon realize though was that the court records of non-publicized cases looked very different from the types of things um, that newspaper writers were saying about African spirituality in Cuba. I was very lucky that at the time that I really started thinking seriously about what to do with these different uh, religious denunciations in in Cuba, the historical and anthropological literature was really taking off. So Kate Ramsey's book about um, voodoo and the law in Haiti sort of really challenged a lot of assumptions about what can be, what can drive um, spiritual repression and, and what are the very kind of elements from below that can shape it. And she and other scholars were also sort of challenging rigid notions of what we might um, considered to be orthodox readings of uh, voodoo or santeria and so if you were to read maybe an introductory text about one of these religions it'd be really easy to think that there's these kind of orthodox rigid views that practitioners have um, But but historians and anthropologists have realized that these religions are flexible enough and not orthodox in a way that we might assume based on um, Judeo-Christian religions. So it becomes easier to imagine uh, different practitioners kind of interacting on the ground um, and exchanging ideas about religious beliefs in Cuba. And so one of the things I had to do was figure out what to do with court cases, for example, that talked about Um, or or in one case, uh, a number of Cubans accuse a Haitian of trying to kidnap one of their children. These types of rumors were somewhat familiar in Cuban scholarship in Eastern Cuba at the time. But in this particular case, They believed that the Haitian was going to steal this child and take her to an American woman on the United Fruit Company plantation uh, where she was apparently buying children. And so this told me that any kind of simple reading of these cases as just kind of um, elite anxieties about African religions and, and, you know, Black Cubans quote unquote, unfitness for citizenship, needed to be qualified a little bit, that there's something on the ground happening. There are other anxieties, not strictly about race and citizenship at play. And again, here, sort of texts, um, were coming out theoretical new theoretical approaches to these religions were coming out right at the time, which were talking about how even practitioners of what we might call voodoo or santeria were had very specific ideas about what were the kind of just and proper ways to practice religion, um, and what religion's relationship to um, what they might call magic or sorcery was. And so it was really easier then to see that people who believed in the kind of power and efficacy of African religions were able to denounce other practitioners for um, impropriety. And so it's just an entirely different story about how judicial, uh, about how religious oppression occurred. Which is not to deny the argument about um, race and citizenship that people in Cuban cities and, and Cuban writers were making at the time. Um, but it is to say that at the local level, um, there were different versions of these debates taking place.
1: At the end of the book, you follow some migrants back to Haiti. How did the remigration change Haiti itself? Well,
0: Return migrants plugged in very specifically to the Haitian political and economic debates that were happening at the time. So in 1934, US troops withdrew from Haiti. And the Haitian president at the time, Stanyo Vincent, was describing this moment as Haiti's second independence. And so not just U.S. officials, but also kind of um, Haitian post-colonial writers and um, state officials were trying to figure out what the future of their country was going to look like. So at the very moment that this is happening, you have these migrants coming back and they have work experience in a semi-industrial setting, which is a sugar plantation. Many of them have wages And it's really easy to imagine the kind of fantasies that state officials had of, okay, we're going to come back and get our sort of respectable modern workforce. Um, This is still a time when Haiti's political economy was envisioned by most people as um, most effectively going to be geared towards exports. The interesting thing that occurred Is that when migrants came back, they had enough money often to kind of, um, in in many cases, they had enough money to where they could be picky about what jobs they wanted to do. Many of them did go back into the countryside, but they weren't forced immediately to work for the very low wages that were available. And certainly not according to the kind of rigid disciplinary schedule that, um, that the haitian government was expecting to increase agricultural exports probably the more interesting part of that story is that many return migrants went back to haitian cities and so port-au-prince increased dramatically in size in the you know from the 20s up through the 1950s well and continues to grow to this day Largely, as a result of rural urban migration, and it was logical for return migrants to want to come back and live in the cities and Yet there weren't that many urban industries there, and so many Haitian riders at the time sort of saw the urban the urban working class as um just this kind of um, bunch of loafers in many ways and so they used a lot of disparaging terms and saw the city as this place that kind of eroded the authenticity of the Haitian peasant who needed to be out there working in the field and so you see a lot of struggles over urban space about uh, urban work and what it should look like but also about about life in rural Haiti coming at the same time And it wasn't just state officials who were doing this. um, I think migrants really loomed large in the Haitian consciousness in the 30s and 40s, which is uh, made clear by just the amount of attention return migrants receive in Haitian literature.
1: So finally, um, I took from the epilogue that you're making a case for longer and deeper entanglement between the two places and an ongoing one as well. That's what I come away with, at least. Uh, so I'm wondering what you wanted readers to come away with.
0: What do I want readers to come away with? I think uh, a couple of different things. One is that migration never happens between static places. and You know, as the global situation is becoming more and more, uh, is making more and more manifest to us that uh, migrants and migration between, especially between nation states or territories are deeply tied to many other concerns. And so the moment you start talking about migrants, you start talking about all these other things as well. And one of the goals of this book was to connect the migrants to all of these other things without losing sight of who the actual people are. I am very surprised to this day about how much Haiti is on the minds of many Cubans. In some ways today, they're considered extremes of, um, you know, the contemporary Caribbean in terms of their relationship with the United States, their kind of overall economic picture. And, you know, um, both countries face challenges, but challenges that are quite different. And yet they are almost always referring to one another as well. And so probably since the time of the Haitian Revolution, if not before, you can't really talk about You know, blackness, for example, in Cuba without really thinking about Haiti as well. And the migratory movement of the early 20th century was just sort of a high watermark of interactions between those two places. Um, And I was surprised that, you know, you read the diaries of Che Guevara and he's talking about Haitians, um, both migrants and also descendants in rural Cuba. And the, the countries are just constantly sort of referencing one another. And I the epilogue was a really fun moment to talk about that. So there's a woman in uh Guantanamo that I met, Olivia Labadie Shetty, and she teaches a Haitian Creole class in Guantanamo, Cuba. And you know, I should point out, I'm talking about Guantanamo, this the city here. And even among Cubans, Guantanamo is seen as sort of this isolated backwater, right? I mean, it has um, the reputation as being very far away. And I would, uh, when I would tell people in Havana that I was going to Guantanamo, they would always laugh and say, have fun, buddy. Um, But essentially, this woman teaches her Haitian Creole classes. And so many times since she's offered them, they've been in demand, either As interpreters uh, for different migrants who are um, stranded at sea or picked up by the Cuban Coast Guard, or she has also trained um, second generation Haitian migrants in Cuba, um, or also Cuban medical personnel who are going back to Haiti. And so, even in this Cuban city, which in some ways is seen as very remote from the center. Of political power there the knowledge of haitian creole is very much in demand um, because of the kind of ongoing sustained relationship between the countries another thing that the book sort of tries to point out is that even though there is that kind of sustained interaction it's often sort of informed by kind of stereotypical or overly simplified Uh, visions of the past between the two countries. And there are many assumptions that in here in Cuban thought about Haiti and Haitians, right? Probably the most, um, the most obvious one has to do with um, this assumption that Haitians were powerless in Cuba in the past and perhaps even to the present today. And without without ignoring the hardships and exploitation that happened um the book tries to show that there's also this other story of um, cubans and haitians finding spaces where they're meeting as um, kind of more on equal terms and certainly engaging in activities that are far um, far from passive and powerless, right? And so if you can start to challenge some of the assumptions that Cubans have about Haiti, um, perhaps then um, that can also kind of uh, raise new questions about this longstanding relationship, which is certainly not limited to the migratory movement that I'm writing about. And so I guess the epilogue does kind of keep it open-ended in that sense.
1: So you've been really generous with your time. And before we go, I just wonder if you can tell us a little bit about what you're working on right now.
0: So right now I'm working. So for the past few years, and this is an ongoing process, I started writing some of the secondary literature that I wished I had had when I was writing the book. Hmm. Um, Anyone who's written knows that you find an interesting source and you say, oh, let me just see if an article or a book or a master's thesis or dissertation has ever been written on this topic. And, um, and when the answer is no, you have to do a lot of primary research just to accomplish something very minor, um, a very small part of a book's larger narrative and so some of that primary research which was informing just a sentence or a paragraph of the book i'm now starting um to to write up as articles but the i'm um, i'm kind of finishing that i'm working on another book right now about the us occupation of haiti and it uses um an anti-occupation journalist uh, named Joseph Jolibois-Fis as kind of a point of departure for asking much larger questions about urban activism in Haiti, uh, both the ways that it occurred or sometimes did not occur across class lines, um, but also Haiti's larger relationship with Latin America. So uh, Jolibois, Jolibois uh, was arrested many times by the US occupation government, partially for uh, breaking censorship laws, and partially uh, for trying to kind of inflame the urban masses who were um, often kind of recent arrivals from the Haitian countryside. And, um, and so looking at him allows us to kind of ask all these questions uh about Haiti that don't often get asked uh, which is you know what role did the censorship laws play in establishing kind of uh, an authoritarian um government during the occupation and and Also, you know, what were the dynamics of urban activism in Haiti in the 20s and 30s, uh, which people haven't really talked about, despite the fact that kind of urban protests is very much alive and well in Haiti today. And the fact that Jolibois traveled to almost every other country in Latin America um, and had sort of mixed results trying to organize people there kind of allows for this larger exploration of Haiti's role in the hemisphere. So it's really supposed to be a totally new look at the U.S. occupation of Haiti using this kind of interesting larger than life figure as a point of departure. So we'll see uh, where that one goes. But that's what I'm working on these days.
1: That sounds fascinating. I actually could have used that when I was writing the book that I just finished. (laughs) So um, uh, I'll look forward to, to seeing it when it's done.
0: I also look forward to seeing it when it's done. I'm not sure when that's going to be. So maybe, maybe someday. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you very much.